It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. You know, just in looking back, retrospect, uh, on Daily Thunder, it's, uh, it's been a neat process. I know for Nathan and I, which we, we've produced a lot of content, and a lot of what we have, if you can say, produced is stuff that we have culled and cultivated for years of our lives. So it's, but at the same time, it's been really neat to just sort of stir it up and organ- reorganize it, repackage things, say things in different ways. Just sort of look at the classic uh, truth and and just enjoy it afresh. So I hope it's been an encouragement for uh, those of you that have uh, tuned into this. But I know it has been a tremendous blessing for us. And I think it's been very significant because when we finish this, we go into a time where oftentimes sing worship songs or we'll pray together. And I think the constancy in an environment of doing that, you know, just like in our individual lives, you know, when we have that devotional center uh, cared for daily where we're protecting it. Well, it's interesting when you do that corporately and just have that consistency. I mean, to have seven days a week where we're doing that here on this campus has been a very, very neat, precious uh, thing, and I'm, I'm excited to see how God builds upon it. So uh, we are starting a semester this weekend, our next semester for the fall. Our, uh, it'll be a, we have our one-week uh, students that are coming in, and then we have, it's also the start of our five-week training. And so when we do that, I'll probably transition into a new series. But So I have today and then I have Friday uh, that are on my docket. And so I figure I might as well do life lessons, and that would give me an even 20. You know, 20 just is a good number as opposed to stopping at 19, because I think this is my 19th uh, life lesson. So it's like ridiculous if Eric Ludi only has 19 life lessons. So I'll probably do 20, just to give you a little heads up, a little anticipation for the, uh, the Friday edition. Uh, but uh, there are so many, the more I've gotten into life lessons, the more I realize it's like I could take that one life lesson and break that into 10. And so, I mean, I could multiply these life lessons like bunny rabbits if I really wanted to, but we're gonna try and uh, contain them. And uh, I have an interesting one today. I, I'd say this is uh, one of the ones that wouldn't, normally uh, pop into my head if someone said, hey, could you give me one of your life lessons? And yet, something, and maybe it was Nathan's message on, well, I guess it was yesterday, and Nathan's message, he's going through an expositional study on Ephesians on Tuesday. I don't know, there's maybe something he said in that that triggered this thought, and I was like, you know what, that is an extremely significant thing in my life, and in what we do here at Ellerslie. Now, the name of this is It Must Be Personalized. And at first, that might sound a little obscure. Maybe you could guess at what that means. But the truth of Jesus Christ is meant to be appropriated in an intimate way and not just a heady way. And many of us as Christians have a tendency to have a relationship with truth text to mind. And we don't understand that there is more to it, and we can't figure out why our Christianity is rather dead and lifeless. And that's because Christianity was intended to be an engagement, just like a relationship with a man and a wife, just like a relationship with a father and a child. There is a connectivity, an intimacy, a sharedness between the truth and the man, or the truth and the woman. And so as a result, this idea, when we have students that come into our environment, 
oftentimes they know truth. They could know it better than I do. In other words, they could quote scripture. They could quote the entire scripture. And yet it's lifeless. You know, we go to Fort Collins. You can talk to someone that's on the streets. They're not, you know, doing so hot in life. And, you know, maybe they're drunk as they come up to me. And so we start talking about their soul. And what's interesting is they could quote scripture better than I could. And yet their life is in ruins. Just knowing about things and having some data in your head actually doesn't activate the data. When I talk to men, I oftentimes talk about the difference between uh, cement and concrete. And many of us have cement in our mind. Uh, and it's, it's all the right ingredients for, uh, for concrete are there. And yet God has called us to have concrete. And so what do you need to make cement concrete? Well, you need an active ingredient. You need to add something to it. And that's sort of what this is. This is like that active ingredient for cement, by the way. It's water. But, and when you add water and stir it in, you get something altogether different than that powdery cement stuff. You get concrete, and it's firm. It's hard, and it works for all sorts of amazing tasks, like foundations to houses. So it must be personalized. So if any of you remember my message years ago, uh, I had a lot of drama surrounding this message. Uh, it was meant to be funny, but it didn't come out that funny, I guess, to some people. It was called The Simplitist, uh, because I always get asked, you know, Eric, are you a Calvinist? And so I, I said that I was a Simplitist, and I was joking. I wasn't trying to create a new soteriological uh, vantage point that we could, like, all ally into. But, you know, the, the Calvinists and the Arminians will all battle over the five points. And so I came up with five points, and I said, I'm a simplitist. Uh, it's based on Paul's statement that said he's, he's, he's concerned that the church is going to be beguiled from the simplicity that is found in Christ, which means the singularity of focus. So that's what it meant. But some people love to jump on the fact that Eric is simple-minded. He just quoted it himself. He said that he's a simple-minded guy. And that wasn't really what I intended to say, but I'll take it. That's fine. Uh, but my five points that I gave were Jesus, 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 and Jesus. And I'd say that's the essence of salvation, and that's where I stand. So in that message to Simplitist, I had this, because this is, again, my concern. You could have all your doctrine correct and miss the whole idea of what Christianity is. So I wrote this, and I, I just copied and pasted it into the notes today. It's actually really uh, intriguing to me. Even to reread it, it's like, yeah, that, that's still where I stand. So imagine... What is lost when truth no longer is a person, but rather a collection of facts to be inspected and or questioned? You know, it's interesting because Jesus himself says that he's the truth. Of course, it's in the context of he's the way, the truth, and the life. But if you were to lift out just the truth, he is the truth. It's a, the truth is a person, which is why when you try and treat truth as data and facts, you really miss something. So what if I approach the humble, gentle, holy, merciful Savior his arms outstretched to embrace me and to draw me near in fellowship. But instead of entering into his arms and knowing him as a person, as a friend, as a bridegroom, and as a Lord, I stop about three feet from him and begin to stare. Hmm, I say to myself, so this is Jesus. I then proceed to take out a handy little notebook that I keep for just such occasions, thumb-click the top of my writing pen, lick my lips, and then begin to scribble down data that I am observing. Medium height. I write down in my notebook, brown hair, brown beard, nicely trimmed, laughing blue eyes, bright big smile. What's that? He seems to be saying something. I can't quite make it out. It sounds like, put down your pad of paper, Eric, and just come to me. Note, he surprisingly doesn't have an accent. 
Size 13, shoes strong, athletic build, olive skin. There he goes again. He's talking. He's saying something akin to, seek to know me, Eric, not just details about me. Note, it's fascinating that his voice is clear, but his meaning is difficult to understand. Another note to self, study Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek so that I can figure out what he is saying. He probably is saying something extremely mysterious. His clothing is undoubtedly kingly. His body from the waist downward is a flame of fire, so I can't quite make out the colors or his chosen clothing style. His whole upper body is shrouded in a rainbow. Oh, he's talking again. Hmm, that's interesting. When his mouth moves, the rainbow about him doesn't move at all. He's still talking. And I'm just absolutely mystified in watching the glimmer of his gold embroidery as his chest is on Wait a minute, I missed that. His gold embroidery as his chest heaves. Okay, now he's finally stopped talking. Hmm, that's odd. His eyes are no longer laughing. In fact, there are tears in them that appear very similar to human tears. Note to self, check to see if it is theologically possible for Jesus to have tears before publishing these observations. All in all, there is a lot of interesting data here to ponder. Note, I'm disconcerted over the fact that Billy Bob last week declared that Jesus wears five crowns on his head because I count six. How dare he diminish the sovereignty of God? Well, back to the lab. May I, maybe I can make this a regular field trip to come and observe and figure out all that is to be known about Jesus Christ. I, I'm assuming you catch the drift of that to say it is totally ridiculous to study Jesus and the truth of God's word as a mere text, as a mere statue to look upon, as opposed to recognize that this is a relationship. And that Jesus Christ is desiring to speak to us personally, not just some vast, incredible philosophical musings that the Bible is going to give that we can peek in at and say, hmm, what a fascinating thought. But that we would recognize that that thought is for us. That when he went to that cross, he did it with us in mind. And when he speaks and gives his word, he is giving it to us as individuals. Not just us as a corporate body, but to us. The significance of that is so very, very important. Someone can know the truth and not really know the truth. How is that? I'm sure many of you have felt that in your life too, that I could ask you a question, like for instance, is God love? Yes, true, true, uh, God is love. Do you know that he loves you? <laughs> and that's where there's oftentimes an impasse. In other words, well, I, I mean, I theo- theologically know he loves me, but not experientially. I don't feel his love. I don't know his love. What, you know that Christianity is meant to pass that chasm from just knowing in your head to understanding in your life. It is a touching thing where your soul touches God. It is an encounter with the living one so that you know that you know that you know as opposed that you know and that's it. You need to know that you know that you know. When someone shoves you in the chest and says, are you sure about that? You shove back and you say, yes, I am. They shove you a couple more times. Are you really, are you truly sure about that? Would you bank your life on it? Yes, I will. You need to know that you know that you know. So the process of discipleship. So often the believer needs to have their name injected into the text. Now, I'm saying this from a lot of experience. Okay? I guess if you're going to go around the world and try and find someone who has worked in discipleship, I would at least be a point you could stop at and say, Eric, give us your opinion on this. Okay, now I've worked with a lot of people 
in regards to going from a starter point in Christianity to a more mature point in Christianity. And I'm going to give you an observation. Some people can sit in a crowd and hear the truth and apply it personally without any help. They just do. And they come to life. They see it. They know it. They understand it. Other people can sit in the same crowd and not get it. They hear it, don't get me wrong, they hear it, but they don't get it for themselves. They can even repeat it back, but they don't get it for themselves. And so oftentimes what we'll do here at Ellerslie is we'll have a more personalized dimension of the application of truth, which will oftentimes stick their name in it. And so we'll go into smaller groups. Sandy will oftentimes work with the, the women. I'll oftentimes be the one working with the men, especially in the, in the classic uh, training model. And so I'll take them into another building and oftentimes I'll walk it through with them personally where they will stick their name into things. You could say, why does that make any difference? Still the same truth. Yeah, but there's something about having it spoken to you personally as opposed to a group. I don't know why. And so there's oftentimes when I used to travel and speak around the world, I would be near the end of a message and I would be like, I know that some of you are hiding behind someone's head right now thinking that this is for everyone else in this room but you. But I want to talk to you. Of course, it's hard to do when you're talking to 10,000 people to talk to an individual, but that's exactly what it is. And so oftentimes before I would, uh, this is just more of a phenomenon of, of ministry, before I would start speaking, I would go down and oftentimes, especially in a big event, I would only get through a few rows in the very front and I would meet as many people and get their names. And then when I would speak, I would bring up their names. And here's what's interesting. When I would get to different points of application, I would oftentimes say names. And so, again, this is just an observation. But when it came to what we would call a ministry time, and we all have different names for different things like this, where at the end, it's like a response time. And people just, they want to do something. They want to say something to God. So oftentimes, you know, we'd have music playing and people would come to the front. I would offer that I would pray for anyone who would like to come down to the front. It was oftentimes the very first rows of the people that I mentioned their name, that I had a personal contact with, that were down in the front. And what is that? What is the dimension of when you know that it's for you personally, it transforms your life? Now, I can say that right now, and for me, this is very significant, okay? So I'm saying this is a life lesson. For me, I've had to know that the truth of Jesus Christ is for me personally. Before I will preach, there's a rule of thumb. I have to live. I cannot preach something I'm not willing to live. If I'm not living it, I should shut up about it. It may be truth, but I'm not yet ready to preach it because I'm not yet ready to live it. So if I'm not yet ready to live it, if it's not mine, if I don't own it in my own life, then I, I, am, I have no business trying to get you to own it. And that's a principle in my life. And it's the same life, life lesson. It must be personalized. So yes, it must be personalized in my life, but what's my desire with your life? I don't want to just talk to a crowd. I want to talk to you. I want you to own this. I want you to know that when I talk about Jesus, he's your savior. When he died on the cross and shed that blood, it was for you. When he was buried and rose again, he had you in mind in bringing you to newness of life. When he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says, it's better for you that I go to be with the Father. He's talking to you there. He's saying, yeah, you, it's better for you too. Not just the disciples back then. You need to own this. You need to hear this. He has given you access under the throne room of grace. He has given you his Holy Spirit, you. He chose you to live inside, to live and move and have his being within you.
to reveal the glory of God through you. Now, what's funny is, even as I'm saying that right now, you can still listen and hear it and not yet appropriate it. And so if we went around this room and I just mentioned everyone's name and I gave the same statements with your name, it actually does help. I'm not going to do that right now. But the point is, it does help. It's a strange thing. And then to actually have you say it out loud. It's called a confession of faith. For you to actually rise up and say, I believe. Say your name. Say, when Christ died, I, and of course my name's Eric, I, Eric Ludi, was crucified with Christ. And by faith I've entered into his work and his death upon the cross. And by faith I've entered into his burial. And by faith I, Eric Ludi, have risen to newness of life in Christ. In his resurrection, I have found resurrection. Me, personally, me, I share in it by faith. And as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, guess what? I'm in Christ. I am seated in heavenly places. I, Eric Ludi. Me. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I, I'm nothing special. But I do see it. And I do realize that the gospel is for me. So in Scripture, we have the word, word. It's always hard to talk about the word, word, because you have to say word twice in the same sentence. There is a word in Scripture called word. I know, that's funny. It's, it comes from the Greek logos. So if any of you have ever heard that, we oftentimes in the English would say logos. But if you want to sound intelligent in the Greek community, you'd say logos. And rema. Now, the certain sectors of Christianity have taken the word rema and run wild with it, which makes it somewhat difficult for those of us that want to maintain a little more sanity in our Christian uh, understanding to know how to deal with the word, but it's a good word, and it's a biblical word, okay? It's in the Bible, and so I don't want anyone to take it hostage out there. I want to take it back, and it's very, very important for this specific discussion, okay? Because when you hear logos, it says that Jesus is the logos, or the word made flesh. He is the revelation of God, that entire Old Testament brought to life, and he lives it before his people, before a nation. He lives it he gives up his life just as it promised it he would. In Isaiah 53, 750 years before he gave up his life and died on that cross, it describes it in detail. On, in Psalm 22, a thousand years before he died on that cross, it describes it in detail. In other words, he's the fulfillment of the logos. The manna made flesh. The rock in the wilderness made flesh. The paschal sacrificial lamb and the offering made flesh. I mean, the whole Bible made flesh. If I was going to describe the Logos, I would say it's like the general revelation. We all get the same thing. You don't get a special version of the Logos. You get the same version I get. We all get the same thing. We're held accountable to the same thing. The same word is ours. So it's common in that sense. It's general. In other words, it's all, all of ours. However, we all live in different bodies. And we all live in different generations, different time periods. We all have different life circumstances but we all have the same logos, which is why we need rhema. We need to know how to take that logos in our life and apply it specifically, which is what we would typically translate as wisdom. And I think that's where it came from yesterday when Nathan was talking about it. It was triggering this whole thought process because he was talking about wisdom. But how do you take that truth, that logos, and live it out today? 
What does it look like for you? What does it look like for you? Because it's not changing the logos, it's applying it. We need wisdom to know how to do this. Or we could say it, we need rhema. We need God's specific application to us. And so what we see is an interesting scripture, Luke 138, very pivotal moment in history. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is uh, approached by an angel, right? Big moment. And the angel basically says, I want to, uh, or God wants your body. He wants to move in and, and uh, give the Messiah to you. And you're going to actually give birth to the Messiah. You're going to carry the Messiah inside of you. Okay, big moment. And I don't know what you would have been like if you were Mary. Uh, but I'm guessing it would be with uh, a little trembling in this moment. But this is Mary's response. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to to thy word, thy rhema. You see, the Messiah is promised to all, but then that Messiah is specifically applied to Mary in a very unique way. How she's going to relate to that Messiah is very unique. The same is true for all of us in a certain way. In other words, the logos is for all of us, but then God will come to us and say, and here's how I want you to carry that logos. Here's how I want you to carry that Messiah. And he teaches us how to walk out our path, how we are supposed to navigate. It will never violate the logos, never violate the general revelation. It will be in perfect concord with it. So the logos would be the Messiah will come to save. All of us hear it. And then the rhema comes to Mary and says, the Messiah will be in your womb. Whew. And that's in a sense what God is saying to us. I want to move into your life. You see, he's taking the logos and he's personalizing it to us. Let me move in. Eric, give this up. And he might mention something, like give up the Denver Broncos, okay? A very specific thing. Now, he's not saying that to you. Because in my life, the Denver Broncos might have this unique grip. And so he comes to me, and he applies that same logos, but very specifically. And I know what to do. I know what I ought to do. And yet what I ought to do might not be what you ought to do. If I came in front of you and said, all of us must give up the Denver Broncos, what I'm doing is I'm attempting to stretch God's personalization of truth over you, and that can create a form of legalism. It's a very inappropriate way of handling it. But the logos behind that, which is that the Holy Spirit does convict us of our sin. He does sanctify us, and we are to throw off the weights that so easily beset us. You see, he's applying all of that truth to me personally, and when it becomes personal, I know what to do. It's a specific conviction of sin. Sometimes God will convict an entire group of people right at the same time over the same thing. But typically, even when I preach, I notice this. When I preach on a certain theme, people can be convicted. The entire room can be convicted, but everyone is uniquely convicted. This person believes they're supposed to do this as a result. This person thinks they're supposed to do this as a result. And they could all be right. Because the Holy Spirit is personalizing that truth, that general truth to everyone in a rhema sort of way. So in 2 Timothy 2.8, and the reason it's high on the screen, because I know if any of you are used to seeing my keynotes, you're like, what's it doing so high? And I even put the translation there, because I'm going to put in another translation, because I think it's apropos in this. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Isn't that a strange statement? My gospel, as if Paul has his own gospel. What, what is that? And the reason I did this is because I wanted you to see what I grew up with in the NIV. It says, this is my gospel. That's what Paul says right here. This is my gospel. According to my gospel. 
It's like, Paul, this is everyone's gospel. What do you mean your gospel? As if you're some special guy. This is how every single one of us should speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is mine. This is mine. It doesn't mean it's not yours too. It's just, this is mine. It's personalized to me. Paul is personalized. What I love about the Bible is, there's a lot of things I love about the Bible. So this isn't like to rule out all the other things I would love. But that God chose individuals to be carried along by the Holy Spirit and to write it, and that anyone who studies literature can go to the Bible and actually recognize that there's a different writing style implemented all throughout the Bible. Same spirit, but different writing style. Because God actually carries along individuals to write. That's, that's an amazing statement. That you can tell the difference between Paul and Peter's writing. You can tell the difference between James is writing and John's writing. Isn't that odd? If you think about it, the same Holy Spirit. And yet, the same will be true for you when he moves through you is there's a distinction between Sarah Guthrie's life lived and Reese Ludy's life lived. Same truth, same Holy Spirit that would govern their lives, but the fruit that comes out will be the same. It's still going to be the fruit of the Spirit, but the way in which it comes out or the specific calling they have or the specific place on this earth they're supposed to spend their time, the very specific unique emphasis they're supposed to bring about might be different. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, if you look at my life and say, oh, so that's the way I need to live. I need to marry a girl that's five years younger than me. That's good for all the girls. And you're like, how am I going to do that? I need, and she needs to have dark hair. She needs to be about five foot. I don't know what Leslie is, about five foot three. I probably should study that before I bring stuff like this up. In other words, if you're looking to pattern yourself after my life, it's really going to mess you up. However, if I were to say, follow me as I follow Christ, what you're following is how I follow the logos, not my specific smaller decisions that are in obedience with the Holy Spirit. You can be inspired by those unto personalization in your life. You will notice in my training, I will never try and tell you to be convicted over the same things I was convicted over. I'll oftentimes even say, God convicted me about this, and it was a unique thing in my life, a unique struggle I had. And for you, it may be different. I've said that so many times throughout my life, lest I infer that what I am being convicted over, like for instance, I don't do puzzles. Sandy loves doing puzzles. So do I. I, I really love doing puzzles. Here's the reason I don't do puzzles. It's not because I believe puzzles are a sin, but puzzles, when I get into a puzzle, I get into a puzzle. And I cannot think about anything else until that crazy puzzle. I'll be, I'll be in a conversation with Leslie thinking about where that piece would be. It's impossible. Did we lose the piece? Because I know it's there on the board. I saw it. I could have sworn I saw that piece. And it was right up because I'm very visual, so I picture where the piece would be. Then I want to sneak into the other room. Leslie's looking at me going, are you even listening to me? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm listening. What are you thinking about? And I don't want to say, a puzzle. I mean, how embarrassing. So finally, I've just decided that puzzles are no good for me, okay? I enjoy them thoroughly. But they become a distraction to my life, to my relationship with my kids, to my relationship with my wife. I marry a puzzle. The moment I have a puzzle, I become betrothed to it. And so as a result, for me, I personally would say it's better for me that I stay away from puzzles. But if I enforce that upon you, I would be doing damage to you because it's unnecessary for the same burden to be upon you. Each of us needs a personalization of truth. Same logos, but where the rema, the wisdom of God, applies to our life to teach us how we, in this unique body, in our unique circumstance, need to live out our life. 
Have you ever felt like you owned the scripture? Have you ever memorized a chunk of scripture and then someone starts repeating it and they get it a little wrong too? It's just like, oh, they got that wrong. That's my scripture. You ever had that where it's like you feel like it's yours and someone else is messing with it? Like a preacher gets up and he starts quoting some scripture like, hey, hey, that's mine. You need to ask permission if you're going to use my scripture. You see, Paul has his gospel. He has his scripture. We need that too. We need the Bible to be ours. We need to feel that that book that we memorize, that book that we've spent years studying, like don't you feel that Ephesians belongs to Nathan somehow? I always feel that. If I'm ever going to preach on Ephesians, yeah, he's back there bragging that it is. Uh, but if I ever preach on Ephesians, I always think of Nathan. He's sort of like this bubble thought up there, and there's Nathan, and he's like standing there in my bubble thought going, hmm. And, you know, because it's like his territory, right? Well, that's good. Nathan should claim it. At the same time, he should allow me to come in and say, hey, can I spend some time here in Ephesians too? And he's like, all right, all right, yeah. Because it's all of ours, it's common, but God is applying it specifically to Nathan because he wants to showcase the beauty, the majesty of Ephesians through Nathan's life. And that's wonderful. The fact that Sandy is all caught up in the book of Hebrews and has spent the last years dealing with Hebrews is the same thing, bubble thought. There's Sandy, and yet, Sandy could say, that's my book. And she'd be right, it is her book. And then I'm feeling awkward as I get close. I need to preach on Ephesians. I need to do this scripture. Is it okay, Sandy? Yes, and she said, you need to say that it's yours too, Eric. You see, God wants to personalize Ephesians to Eric, Hebrews to Eric, and to you guys as well. It's common, but then it needs to be ours. We need to own it. Quebec, Canada. So I remember when I was in high school, I went on a, well, when I was 13, I went on a very unique trip with my uncle who uh, we, we drove up through the, uh, the eastern states. He was showing me Ivy League colleges, and he wanted me to choose between uh, Harvard and Yale. And then he was taking me up into Canada, and it was quite the trip. I had to wear a suit in the car, okay, the whole time. I'm 13. I'd never even worn a suit, probably. And so it was a very uncomfortable trip for me in many regards, but very interesting. And so we went to what I thought was Quebec, and I find out that it's Quebec, okay? And I, we walked the streets, and I had, I mean, my uncle was a, an ex, a historian. He's passed away now. But he was a historian extraordinaire, okay? So I learned things. You know, I had, we ate in five-star restaurants. I went into this cheese restaurant in Quebec that was the worst-smelling place I now understand what it means when someone says, who cut the cheese? It make, makes total sense to me right now, okay? It's like, oh, oh, oh. And then to eat the stuff? Who wants to eat something that smells like that? That's what was going through my 13-year-old head. Okay, so I have this experience. It is personalized to Eric Ludi, right? I go through that, and then I come back to school, and I want to say it was in high school, like it was a few years later or something, and we're, we're learning American history, and something about uh, Lafayette and up in uh, the French Canada. And, you know, and I'm thinking, first of all, they mis mispronounced, my teacher mispronounced Quebec and said Quebec. Okay, so I was really struggling as I'm sitting there. Do I correct my teacher? Because he's actually, he's talking about my backyard here. I know that place. I know what the cheese smells like in that place. I've walked on the cobblestone streets in that place. I learned how to say merci in that place, and s'il vous plaît. 
I learned those things, right? And so my teacher is sort of getting some things wrong. And it's an ownership. And so that's why I'm saying, hey, I've been there. It becomes my territory. Now, as if I'm the only guy who has ever visited Quebec, or Quebec, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, sorry, there's someone out there going, he just said that wrong. There's, there's a Canadian in here too. Any, just one Canadian in here that's very sensitive to how I'm pronouncing everything? Okay, you're not sensitive. Uh, so the point being that we own something. It's our experience. And as a result, there's a certain, I don't know if you'd call it, it can be pride. It can be a very bad thing. Sort of like you, where you raise your hand and then you say, you want to say, uh, and by the way, I've been there. You ever had that where you're in a, a conversation? You want people to know. You want to get some points out of this, right? It's like, hey, I've been there, and I don't know if I did that. I can't remember. i horrified to think I probably did, but I'm, I don't remember, which is a really good thing right now. So as a result, you don't know if I did or not, okay? So let's just conclude that I didn't. But it's one of those moments where you want to say, you want to get some credit, right? So here's my finishing thought. Jesus Christ. When someone brings up Jesus Christ, a lot of us shy away because, you know, there's a shame associated with Jesus Christ in this culture. But have you ever thought, if you really know Jesus and you know his majesty and you know that he is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords, that all things are underneath his feet, it's like sort of knowing the President of the United States. You know, if you knew Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump is... He's maligned quite often, uh, and he's not really liked by a lot of people in this country. And so you could be the son of Donald Trump. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to be the son of Donald Trump and hear people talking about Donald Trump? It's like, <clears throat> hey, that's my father. With Jesus, to realize that we are to know him, to personalize this to the degree that if someone takes his name in vain, it actually disturbs us because he is so precious to us. So, hey, I know him. Paul had a boast, and his boast was not in his own accomplishments, the fact that he visit, visited Quebec and had smelled smelly cheese. That wasn't his boast. His boast was in Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He knew him, and he knew the power of his resurrection. He knew the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what he longed for more than anything, is to know him more. And so for all of us to recognize, we crave the personalization. So I don't know where you're at right now. You could have a level of personalization. It's like, yes, I know, I know Jesus. How well? Well, I'm, okay, a beginner's level. Crave that more. That it would be even more and more personalized to you. That you would be able to, with Paul, say, this is my gospel. This is my Bible. This is my verse right here. My verse was always uh, Isaiah 40, you know, the very last verse. Uh, Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Oh, that was mine. When people would quote it, it was like, hey, that's mine. And it came from Chariots of Fire, you know, at the very, this key point, where Eric Little, Eric Ludi, Eric Little. So that's, I was bonded with that movie. Uh, and he quoted that scripture where he should have been running on Sunday. Instead, he was in a church preaching, and then he quoted that scripture. It's like, this now is my scripture. And so it became mine. I want to lay claim to the entire Bible. I want to stake it all out and say, mine, 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 mine. I want all the promises to be mine. I want the gospel to be mine. I want that cross 
to be my cross. That burial, my burial. That resurrection, my resurrection. That seated position in heaven, my seated position. It's ironically called the identification doctrines. The personalized doctrines, if you want to say it that way. This must be personal. It must be personalized. And when it is, it gains wings and soars in our life. Father, I ask that you would do that exact thing in us. Lord, if there's a hunger by anyone here today that's streaming or that's going to hear this podcast later, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to fall to our knees and say, Lord, I don't want to go another moment in my Christian life just having data. I want to know you. I want to know you the way Paul is describing. I want to walk in the realities of these truths and own them. I want to cry out, this is my gospel too. Lord Jesus, we love you and we submit to you in this. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.